0: Chapter Seventeen of Marius the Epicurean, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean, Volume Two by Walter Pater. Chapter Seventeen Beata Herbs. Many prophets and kings have desired to see the things which ye see. The enemy on the Danube was indeed but the vanguard of the mighty invading hosts of the 5th century. Elusively repressed just now, those confused movements along the northern boundary of the empire were destined to unite triumphantly at last in the barbarism which, powerless to destroy the Christian church, was yet to suppress for a time the achieved culture of the pagan world. The kingdom of Christ was to grow up in a somewhat false alienation from the light and beauty of the kingdom of nature, of the natural man, with a partly mistaken tradition concerning it and an incapacity, as it might almost seem at times, for eventual reconciliation thereto. Meantime, Italy had armed itself once more in haste, and the imperial brothers set forth for the Alps. Whatever misgivings the Roman people may have felt as to the leadership of the younger was unexpectedly set at rest, though with some temporary regret for the loss of what had been, after all, a popular figure on the world stage. Traveling fraternally in the same litter with Aurelius, Lucius Verus was struck with a sudden and mysterious disease, and died as he hastened back to Rome. His death awoke a swarm of sinister rumors to settle on Lucilla. Jealous, it was said, of Fabia her sister, perhaps of Faustina. On Faustina herself, who had accompanied the imperial progress, and was anxious now to hide a crime of her own even on the elder brother, who beforehand, with the treasonable designs of his colleagues, should have helped him at supper to a favorite morsel, cut with a knife poisoned ingeniously on one side only. Aurelius certainly, with sincere distress, his long irritation so dutifully concealed or repressed turned now into a single feeling of regret for the human creature, carried the remains back to Rome and demanded of the Senate a public funeral, with a decree for the apotheosis, or canonization, of the dead. For three days the body lay in state in the forum, enclosed in an open coffin of cedar wood on a bed of ivory and gold in the center of a sort of temporary chapel, representing the temple of his patroness, Venus Genetrix. Armed soldiers kept watch around it while choirs of select voices relieved one another in the chanting of hymns, or monologues, from the great tragedians. At the head of the couch were displayed the various personal decorations which had belonged to Varus in life. Like all the rest of Rome, Marius went to gaze on the face he had seen last scarcely disguised under the hood of a traveling dress, as the wearer hurried at nightfall along one of the streets below the palace to some amorous appointment. Unfamiliar as he still was with dead faces, he was taken by surprise, and touched, far beyond what he had reckoned on, by the piteous change there, even the skill of Galen having been not wholly successful in the process of embalming. It was as if a brother of his own were lying low before him, with that meek and helpless expression it would have been a sacrilege to treat rudely. Meantime in the centre of the campus martius, within the grove of poplars which enclosed the space where the body of Augustus had been burnt, the great funeral pyre, stuffed with shavings of various aromatic woods, was built up in many stages, separated from each other by a light entablature of woodwork, and adorned abundantly with carved and tapestried images. Upon this pyramidal or flame-shaped structure lay the corpse, hidden now under a mountain of flowers and incense brought by the women, who from the first had had their fondness for the wanton graces of the deceased. The dead body was surmounted by a waxen effigy of great size, arrayed in the triumphal ornaments. At last the centurions to whom that office belonged drew near, torch in hand to ignite the pile at its four corners, while the soldiers in wild excitement flung themselves around it casting into the flames the decorations they had received for acts of valor under the dead Emperor's command. It had been a really heroic order, spoiled a little at the last moment, through the somewhat tawdry artifice by which an eagle, not a very noble or youthful specimen of its kind, was caused to take flight amid the real or affected awe of the spectators, above the perishing remains. A court chamberlain, according to ancient etiquette, subsequently making official declaration before the Senate that the imperial genius had been seen in this way escaping from the fire. And Marius was present when the fathers, duly certified of the fact by acclamation, muttering their judgment altogether in a kind of low rhythmical chant, decreed Calium, the privilege of divine rank to the departed. The actual gathering of the ashes in a white sercloth by the widowed Lucilla when the last flicker had been extinguished by drops of wine and the conveyance of them to the little cell, already populous in the central mass of the sepulchre of Hadrian, still in all the splendor of its statued colonnades, were a matter of private or domestic duty, after due accomplishment of which Aurelius was at liberty to retire for a time into the privacy of his beloved apartments of the Palatine and hither not long afterwards Marius was summoned a second time to receive from the imperial hands the great pile of manuscripts it would be his business to revise and arrange. One year had passed since his first visit to the palace, and as he climbed the stairs to-day the great cypresses rocked against the sunless sky like living creatures in pain. He had to traverse a large subterranean gallery once a secret entrance to the imperial apartments, and in our own day amid the ruin of all around it, as smooth and fresh as if the carpets were but just removed from its floor after the return of the Emperor from the shows. It was here, on such an occasion, that the Emperor Caligula at the age of twenty-nine had come by his end, the assassins gliding along it as he lingered a few moments longer to watch the movements of a party of noble youths at their exercise in the courtyard below. As Marius waited a second time in that little red room in the house of the Chief Chamberlain, curious to look once more upon its painted walls, the very place whither the assassins were said to have turned for refuge after the murder, he could all but see the figure which in its surrounding light and darkness seemed to him the most melancholy in the entire history of Rome. He called to mind the greatness of that popularity and early promise the stupefying height of irresponsible power from which, after all, only men's viler side had been clearly visible, the overthrow of reason, the seemingly irredeemable memory, and still above all the beautiful head in which the noble lines of the race of Augustus were united to, he knew not what expression of, sensibility and fineness, not theirs, and for the like of which one must pass onward to the Antonines. Popular Hatred had been careful to destroy its semblance wherever it was to be found. But one bust, in dark bronze-like basalt of a wonderful perfection of finish, preserved in the Museum of the capital, may have seemed to some visitors there perhaps the finest extant relic of Roman art. Had the very seal of empire upon those somber brows reflected from his mirror, suggested his insane attempt upon the liberties, the dignity of men. O humanity, he seems to ask, what hast thou done to me that I should so despise thee? And might not this be indeed the true meaning of kingship if the world would have one man to reign over it? The like of this, or, some incredible, surely never-to-be-realized height of disinterestedness in a king who should be the servant of all, quite at the other extreme of the practical dilemma involved in such a position. Not till some while after his death had the body been decently interred by the piety of the sisters he had driven into exile. Fraternity of feeling had been no invariable feature in the incidents of Roman story. One long viscus sceleratus, from its first dim foundation in fraternal quarrel on the morrow of a common deliverance so touching, had not almost every step in it some gloomy memory of unnatural violence. Romans did well to fancy the traitorous Tarpeia, still green in earth, crowned, enthroned at the roots of the Capitoline Rock. If in truth the religion of Rome was everywhere in it, like that perfume of the funeral incense still upon the air, so also was the memory of the crime prompted by hypocritical cruelty down to the erring or not erring, Vesta calmly buried alive there only 80 years ago under Domitian. It was with a sense of relief that Marius found himself in the presence of Aurelius, whose gesture of friendly intelligence, as he entered, raised a smile at the gloomy train of his own thoughts just then, although since his first visit to the palace a great change had passed over it. The clear daylight found its way now into empty rooms. To raise funds for the war Aurelius, his luxurious brother being no more, had determined to sell by auction the accumulated treasures of the imperial household the works of art, the dainty furniture had been removed and were now on view in the Forum, to the delight or dismay, for many weeks to come, of the large public of those who were curious in these things. In such wise had Aurelius come to the condition of philosophic detachment he had effected as a boy, hardly persuaded to wear warm clothing or to sleep in more luxurious manner than on the bare floor. But in his empty house, the man of mind, who had always made so much of the pleasures of philosophic contemplation, felt freer in thought than ever. He had been reading with less self-reproach than usual in the Republic of Plato, those passages which described the life of the philosopher kings, like that of hired servants in their own house, who, possessed of the gold undefiled of intellectual vision, forego so cheerfully all other riches. It was one of his happy days, one of those rare days when, almost with none of the effort, otherwise so constant with him, his thoughts came rich and full, and converged in a mental view as exhilarating to him as the prospect of some wide expanse of landscape to another man's bodily eye. He seemed to lie readier than was his wont to the imaginative influence of the philosophic reason to its suggestions of a possible open country, commencing just where all actual experience leaves off, but which experience, one's own and not another's, may one day occupy. In fact, he was seeking strength for himself in his own way, before he started for that ambiguous earthly warfare which was to occupy the remainder of his life. Ever remember this, he writes, that a happy life depends, not on many things, an ketai and today committing himself with a steady effort of volition to the mere silence of the great empty apartments, he might be said to have escaped, according to Plato's promise to those who live closely with philosophy, from the evils of the world. In his conversations with himself Marcus Aurelius speaks often of that city on high, of which all other cities are but single habitations. From him, in fact, Cornelius Fronto in his late discourse had borrowed the expression and he certainly meant by it more than the whole commonwealth of Rome and any idealization of it, however sublime. Incorporate somehow with the actual city whose goodly stones were lying beneath his gaze, it was also implicate in that reasonable constitution of nature, by devout contemplation of which it is possible for man to associate himself to the consciousness of God. In that new Rome he had taken up his rest for a while on this day, deliberately feeding his thoughts on the better air of it, as another might have gone from mental renewal to a favorite villa. Men seek retirement in country houses, he writes, on the seacoast, on the mountains, and you have yourself as much fondness for such places as another. But there is little proof of culture therein, since the privilege is yours of retiring into yourself whensoever you please, into that little farm of one's own mind where a silence so profound may be enjoyed. That it could make these retreats was a plain consequence of the kingly prerogative of the mind, its dominion over circumstance, its inherent liberty. It is in thy power to think as thou wilt. The essence of things is in thy thoughts about them. All is opinion, conception. No man can be hindered by another. What is outside thy circle of thought is nothing at all to it. Hold to this and you are safe. One thing is needful to live close to the divine genius within thee and minister thereto worthily. And the first point in this true ministry, this culture, was to maintain one's soul in a condition of indifference and calm. How continually had public claims, the claims of other persons with their rough angularities of character broken in upon him, the shepherd of the flock. But after all, he had at least this privilege he could not part with, of thinking as he would and it was well now and then by a conscious effort of will, to indulge it for a while under systematic direction. The duty of thus making discrete systematic use of the power of imaginative vision for purposes of spiritual culture, since the soul takes color from its fantasies, is a point he has frequently insisted on. The influence of these seasonable meditations, a symbol or sacrament, because an intensified condition of the soul's own ordinary and natural life would remain upon it perhaps for many days. There were experiences he could not forget, intuitions beyond price. He had come by in this way which were almost like the breaking of a physical light upon his mind, as the great Augustus was said to have seen a mysterious physical splendor yonder upon the summit of the Capitol, where the altar of the Sybil now stood. With a prayer therefore for inward quiet, for conformity to the divine reason, he read some select passages of Plato which bear upon the harmony of the reason in all its forms within itself. Could there be Cosmos, that wonderful reasonable order in him, and nothing but disorder in the world without? It was from this question he had passed on to the vision of a reasonable divine order, not in nature but in the condition of human affairs, that unseen celestial city, Uranopolis, Callipolis, Urb's Beata in which a consciousness of the divine will being everywhere realized, there would be among other felicitous differences from this lower visible world, no more quite hopeless death of men, or children, or of their affections. He had tried to-day as never before to make the most of this vision of a new Rome, to realize it as distinctly as he could, and, as it were, find his way along its streets, ere he went down into a world so irksomely different to make his practical effort towards it with a soul full of compassion for men as they were. However distinct the mental image might have been to him with the descent of but one flight of steps into the market-place below, it must have retreated again, as if at the touch of some malign magic wand, beyond the utmost verge of the horizon. But it had been actually in his clearest vision of it a confused place, with but a recognizable entry a tower or fountain here or there and haunted by strange faces, whose novel expression he, the great physiognomist, could by no means read. Plato indeed had been able to articulate, to see, at least in thought, his ideal city. But just because Aurelius had passed beyond Plato in the scope of the gracious charities he presupposed there, he had been unable really to track his way about it. Ah, after all! According to Plato himself, all vision was but reminiscence, and this his heart's desire, no place his soul could ever have visited in any region of the old world's achievements. Had he but divined by a kind of generosity of spirit the void place, which another experience than his might fill. Yet Marius noted the wonderful expression of peace, of quiet pleasure on the countenance of Aurelius as he received from him the rolls of fine clear manuscript fancying the thoughts of the Emperor occupied at the moment with the famous prospect towards the Alban Hills from those lofty windows. End of chapter 17. Recording by Philip Gould.